electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. to understand that we all are human beings and that we have weaknesses and people like you and me who are black sometimes need to put ourselves in the shoes of white people to understand what may be happening to them that we may not fully understand and I think that's part of the political phenomenon we're seeing now because I think there are many white Americans upstanding, outstanding citizens who are hurting and they don't feel that the system is working for them, that our political, economic, social, educational systems are working for them. The key to understanding this moment in American history, in black history, is empathy. That's what Darren Walker is saying. And one could argue that if anybody's positioned to understand this dizzying landscape, he is. Walker grew up in rural Texas, became one of the first kids in the Head Start program, and made it big on Wall Street in the 1980s. But his true calling was even bigger. He's now president at the Ford Foundation, an $11 billion philanthropy giant that's aiming to address social justice and inequality around the globe. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort. It's the first Fort Knox episode of February, Black History Month, and I invite you to listen in on a conversation with a unique American leader who also happens to be black. Walker recently made Fast Company's list of the most creative people in business, and there's no shortage of reasons why. His journey from humble beginnings is just part of it. Here's Darren Walker. Well, I understand authentically the challenge of poverty in this country. I was born in a small town in Louisiana in a charity hospital to a single mother. I uh, moved with my mom to a small rural town, Ames, Texas, in Liberty County in the early 60s. And I was fortunate enough in 1965 to have a young woman approach the porch of the little shotgun house that we lived in and ask my mother if I could be enrolled in a new program called Head Start that was having its first summer in 1965. And so Head Start really was my start. I think it really helped me to uh, foment in me a learning, a thirst for reading and knowledge and um, my curiosity. Uh, in so many ways, um, I can remember the, that early, early time in Head Start. What was your favorite subject in school growing up? It was English and reading and history and geography. I was always curious about the world, which is so wonderful because now I have the privilege of traveling the world as president of Ford Foundation. But I remember as a little boy um, in this small town um, looking at the map of the world and and just imagining what other places far removed from Ames, Texas would be like to live in. And you weren't always in philanthropy. Uh, when you first started your working life, 
tell me about that. What were your first jobs out of school? You did very well in school. Uh, and what impression did that leave on you? Well, I am a product of public schools. And I attended the University of Texas at Austin, and I went to UT Law School. And after that time, I came to New York to uh, accept a job at a law firm, Cleary Gottlieb Steen in Hamilton. Um, I then went to UBS and spent um, eight years on a trading floor, which was a really exciting uh, job. And it also gave me an opportunity to, quite honestly, um, have some financial security in my life for the first time. One of the things that happens to, to you when you grow up without a lot of material um, well-being is that you never want to go back to that again. <laughs> right. And so for me, working on Wall Street provided me uh, with, with that security. So what years are we talking when you are on trading floors uh, starting to do well? From 1986 to 1993. And then in 1994, I, I began the next chapter uh, of my career, which was running a nonprofit in Harlem at the Abyssinian Development Corporation. They're making movies now about Wall Street in the 80s. You know, Wolf of Wall Street, the kind of attitude of excess. Of course, we've had Greed is Good and the Wall Street movie uh, for a while. What was your mindset at the time? I mean, I know uh, sometimes people who grow up with humble beginnings, when they get money, it doesn't affect them. Sometimes, you know, humble beginnings, we get money, people go crazy. <laughs> what were you in between on one side or the other? Well, I actually felt privileged and, and highly grateful for the opportunity. And sometimes people would say to me, um, don't be so grateful. <laughs> Demand more. Uh, and I think they may have been right. But for me to live in a country that made it possible for a kid like me to come from a small town in Texas to New York City um, and uh, to do reasonably well, I'm, I'm enormously grateful for that. And every day living in this country, I uh, have gratitude for the gifts and the opportunities that have come my way, the generosity that I've experienced on my journey. But I also realize that there is far too much inequality in our society today. And that's what we're focusing on at the Ford Foundation. Was there a point in your personal life where you really started to focus on giving back, whether it was your time, whether it was your money? I don't know if you were uh, still a student at the time or if it's when you uh, went into law or trading floors started to make money. Did you start to say, well, here's a percentage of what I'm making or here's a percentage of my time that I want to dedicate to this or to that that's completely unrelated from what I'm doing Monday through Friday? Well, even when I was at UBS, I uh, was on the boards of nonprofit organizations. And that was, uh, for me, a way of being engaged in the community. I very much uh, could have been isolated uh, working uh, at, a, at a big bank on Park Avenue from the reality of what was happening, for example, up in Harlem. And so I found myself more um, uh, attracted to and, 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 and interested in getting engaged in Harlem in, in the 1980s, which was a very different community than it is today. And so I joined the boards of a couple of nonprofits in Harlem and I started to spend more time and you start to notice things. You notice that when you're taking the train uptown, that at 96th Street, the white people all get off. <laughs> I and noticed that. You yeah. notice things like that in 1986 when you're on the train going uptown. It's still that way in 2016. Well, 
Not in Harlem anymore. Well, not, not all the white people get well, off at 96. In, not anymore. In fact, <laughs> in fact, you know, Harlem today is a, a very racially diverse community. And with the, the gentrification and uh, the economic, um, uh, I think, improvement in the community, the real concern is displacement of people. And of course, um, your old neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant oh, is yeah. another community that is experiencing remarkable transformation because it's got some of the greatest housing in all of New York City is in Bed-Stuy. Oh, yeah. And so people want that housing, but there are a lot of people who've been there for years. Um, and who are at serious risk of being being displaced. And we need to be concerned about that. So you're in a unique position to help tackle this question of what we do about these disparities that we see in the country, certainly, but, but in the world, too, today. So you take a look at what's happening in the presidential election. You take a look at Brexit. It seems like a lot of people feel like there are people who this is working for, this system, this economy, but, but I'm not one of those people so let's just tear this down and do something else. Uh, there are people who get treated by, uh, fairly by the authorities, but that's not me. So, you know, I'm taking to the streets. Uh, how do you bridge that? Because sure. I, just to tell you a little bit about my perspective, I grew up on the East Coast, Bed-Stuy and then Washington, D.C. Decided to go to college in the Midwest, Greencastle, Indiana, DePaul University. Oh, right? that's fantastic. Uh, so out there, small school, liberal arts in the middle of Putnam County, uh, population 10,000, and I had certain ideas growing up in an urban area about yes. what the Midwest was like. And um, when I was doing an internship one summer, I got kind of the, the shock of my life when it comes to diversity issues. I was assigned to go out to a Kentucky county that was thinking about going dry, you know, mm -hmm. not serving alcohol. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had to find some real people to talk to. And I remember I went out with a photographer who was also an intern. We were looking for people in the middle of the day and I saw these guys in the back of a pickup truck, uh, looked to be early 20s, maybe late teens, long hair, carrying bottles, drinking from them. I was like, perfect. So I followed them into a shoe store, a pay less. And uh, they're talking to a woman who works there. And I say, excuse me, I'm working on the story about you know alcohol, the county thinking about going dry. I was wondering if you talked to me about it. The guy says, okay, I don't really have much of an opinion. I said, well, I see you got a bottle there, and you know, he's like, oh, this is non-alcoholic beer. And I went, oh, I saw the long-haired guy with the Metallica T-shirt and a bottle in the back of a pickup truck, and I made assumptions about him right off the exactly. bat, and exactly. I was, t this is what's been happening to me all my life, and exactly. I just did it. Exactly. How do we, either get people experiences like that who aren't right. having them, right. or get people to put on other people's shoes, walk exactly. a mile in somebody else's moccasins. Exactly. Is, is that what we have to do in order to bridge this divide that we're seeing? Well, I think we have to first be clear about what the divide manifests, because it really does manifest a growing sense of inequality in our society. And those that inequality is, 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 has, has a set of drivers, and those driver, drivers are uh, political systems that don't work uh, for, uh, for far too many uh, Americans, um, an economic system that is not working for far too many Americans. We're seeing sort of narratives about particular people in America, particular Americans, African-American men, for example, and criminal behavior, um, which has led to mass incarceration in this country. 
So these, these drivers are producing the kinds of uh, distortions in our democratic process that are very troubling. The issue of putting ourselves in other people's shoes is, at its core, a question of empathy. Are we an empathetic nation? Are we an empathetic people? The way we become more empathetic is by understanding our humanity and by not, uh, not being uh, taken advantage of by narratives that seek to divide our humanity, that seeks to make your humanity less than mine or less relevant or important or my humanity uh, at the top of some hierarchy. We have to understand that we all are human beings and that we have weaknesses. And people like you and me who are black sometimes need to put ourselves in the shoes of white people to understand what may be happening to them that we may not fully understand. And I think that's part of the political phenomenon we're seeing now, because I think there are many white Americans, upstanding, outstanding citizens, who are hurting, and they don't feel that the system is working for them, that our political, economic, social, educational systems are working for them. So you're the head of a $12 billion foundation. Correct me if I got the number wrong. That's correct. How do you hand out money or decide how to hand out money to have an impact on that? Are there, are there organizations? Do, how do you choose, okay, I, I, I want to help this project of understanding. I want to help with empathy. I want to help shape a narrative. So I put money there and not here. Well, we have uh, a theory of how change happens in society that, that we have learned and honed over eight decades, and that is to invest in three things. Invest in institutions, invest in ideas, and invest in individuals. Investing in those three eyes, if you do it strategically and smartly, can help contribute to social change and social progress. And so the way we think about our investments is what are the anchor institutions that can help contribute to disrupting inequality, those systems that can improve the political systems, that can reverse the narratives or invalidate the narratives. How do we think about an educational system that works for more people? And so institutions and the leaders of those institutions and ideas, innovation, we have to invest in all of this simultaneously in a strategic way because we spend most of our time actually not saying yes, but saying no. Uh, Ford Foundation put money into La Raza uh, decades ago, right? Absolutely. So you've learned from that. H how do you, you got to be a good judge of character because oftentimes the investments that look smart decades later look really controversial That's at the correct. time. That's correct. How do you do that when, you, when you're investing in individuals? Well. We made our first investment in South Africa in 1952 because there was a new phenomenon there, a new system called apartheid that the world did not understand. But we believe that it was important to begin to under, understand the implications of a system that codified racism. And it was not popular 
uh, for many years for the Ford Foundation to invest in uh, lifting up uh, and framing what was happening in South Africa and the implications for the well-being of most people in that country. So what exactly was the investment in back in the 50s? The investment was in research, was in giving black South Africans uh, educational scholarships, uh, providing them with opportunities to come to the United States to uh, get a master's or PhD, and also to share with Americans, Europeans, the United Nations, their experience as black South Africans. It was almost four decades of grant making. And during that time, we were not always popular because it's important to remember that Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tambo were enemies of the state. They were the United bombing. States government. <laughs> they were bombing things. Said that they were the time. enemies. Right. They, they were controversial. Absolutely. Um, Nelson Mandela went through a lot of different phases. Absolutely. And we supported during that period efforts for reconciliation because ultimately we believed, as did most people in South Africa, that the country needed to be democratic and that it needed to uh, eradicate its system of racism. In the United States, we have challenges with the system of racism that manifest in a, uh, a racial hierarchy that we uh, are troubled by. But in order for us to have the kind of reconciliation we need in America, it will be necessary for us to be uncomfortable because we can't get to the other side without addressing and reconciling some of the uncomfortable truths and uncomfortable contradictions that we see in our democracy, both conceptually, a democracy, a constitution that says we are all equal, and at the same time says, but that there are some who are only three-fifths of the human beings. Mm. And how we reconcile that will require us to engage in some uncomfortable, difficult conversation. And we are supporting those kinds of difficult conversations at the Ford Foundation. One of the things that's impressed me about Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, sort of watching them over a period of years, is I know Mark Zuckerberg used to quietly, without telling a lot of people, go to different community organizations in and around Palo Alto, East Palo Alto, Menlo Park, and just sort of listen in. I, I had a friend, have a friend who was a, uh, a school teacher at a charter school, a uh, private school, and he visited her classroom and just hung out in the back. And the kids didn't even know who he was. Right. He just sort of checked it out. And in the process, he was probably getting ideas for the school that he and Priscilla Chan are implementing right now. So taking himself out of his comfort zone. When you have control over billions of dollars and you're surrounded by people who have at least millions and millions of dollars and things that they want you to contribute to, how do you maintain empathy with the people who don't have anything to offer you financially but who you want to reach? What kind of trips do you have to take? Absolutely. Well, first, I think what Mark and Priscilla are doing is remarkable. Their commitment uh, to 
uh, eradicating uh, global poverty to reducing the educational inequality that we see uh, in the United States uh, by working in their own community in East Palo Alto, which, as you know, um, while bordering Palo Alto is not Palo Alto. miles away, <laughs> yeah. thousands of miles Worlds away, away. Yeah. in so many ways from Palo Alto. What you have to do is stay grounded. And you stay grounded by uh, your uh, degree of engagement on the issues and with regular folk. For me, that's pretty easy because my own experience my own lived experience, the experience of my family today keeps me grounded. When I have seven of my male cousins who have served time in state penitentiaries, one of whom killed himself in the, the county jail, um, I, I stay grounded because um, I'm connected to them, and I'm connected to uh, family who uh, don't have the privilege that I have. And, and I stay grounded because when I visit places like Lagos, yes, I pay a visit uh, to the ambassador, but I also go to uh, the Makoko uh, slum. And when you're in that slum uh, and you see the level of poverty, and yet you see the resilience of people and the hopefulness that people live with every day. It's inspiring. When you take a trip like that, and you come back, and I'm sure you've done it many, many times. Um, you've been in philanthropic work for, for, for quite a while. How do you translate the experience that you had into meaningful action without putting too much of your subjective experience into it, right? Because sometimes, I mean, people go on mission trips, people go on other types of trips and they come back and their own experience has show, so shaped what they think needs to happen That's right. that things can get distorted. How do, you, how do you get that balance to you that helps you to make a good decision? I think this is where having people around you who actually challenge you, disagree with you, interrogate you as a leader is important. And unfortunately, we don't have enough of that today. Unfortunately, I find that too many of us live in somewhat isolated circumstances where we don't have people on a daily basis challenging us. Who interrogates you? Oh, my vice presidents interrogate me. <laughs> my program officers interrogate me. Uh, I, my board interrogates me. Um, and they should, because I need to be held accountable as a leader. Uh, and I can't uh, over-attribute my experience or my perspective uh, onto uh, an entire institution without understanding what other data uh, indicate uh, are the right interventions, what other research, what other experiences of my colleagues mirror or not my own. Does that still happen though? Because I find every time, I mean, I, I try to stay an empathetic person. I think it's important for a journalist, just like it must be important for somebody in philanthropy to do that. Is it just natural to feel that pull? And, and so you have to have somebody who can rein you in? Well, I think that it is very true that power can be corrupted. 
And that in a position like mine, if I don't have um, an internal um, gauge that says, wait a minute, Darren, you may not be right about this. That if I'm not having that conversation in my head every day, um, then it is so easy to be corrupted by the fact that I'm in a position where people spend a lot of time telling me that I'm right when I'm not always right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Last thing I want to be sure to touch on, as I, as I watch, and we're at risk of sounding like a couple of older guys here, to the teenagers, to the 20-somethings who are out there um, raising their voices. But, but has the fundamental nature of dissent changed at all uh, with, with this generation? The, the reason why I ask is I see young people sometimes protesting without articulating an end in mind. Yes. And I mean, maybe yes. that's the way it's always been. I mean, yes. When I study the civil yes. rights movement, there's always younger people yes. who have a different sort of energy and older yes. people who are saying, well, wait a second, let's get strategic. And so has, has it fundamentally changed at all? Or is it just a different phase of the same dynamic between youthful energy and wanting to be heard and older people wanting things to be quieter and being strategic first? Well, I think technology has changed things because, because mobilizing people and voices happens at an unprecedented speed today. Hmm. And so you can in one day mobilize 100,000 people. It would have taken months to mobilize 100,000 people. It took Dr. King years to get to the point of being able to have that march. So I do think that technology has been a game changer. I also think that young people today don't necessarily buy into our uh, normative hierarchical thinking about what leaders and what leadership is about with someone at the top of a pyramid. They like the distributed idea of leadership, which we find very unsatisfactory um, because we need to see a person a Martin Luther King, a Gandhi, a Gloria Steinem, at the front of the pyramid, the top of the pyramid, who is the lead negotiator on behalf of the people. But how do you negotiate when there's no lead negotiator? That's right. It's a much more challenging uh, 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 opportunity, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it must be addressed, it must be dealt with, because we won't solve these problems um, unless we deal with these great new millennials working on social change today. Can you tell me how? I mean, have you, have you seen it work? Because I, I, I'm wondering about this personally now. I'm on the on an alumni board with my alma mater, and uh, at the school, there are incidents and tensions, racial tensions and misunderstandings, like we're seeing in lots of different places. And as an alum of the university, I'm trying to reach out and talk to students and get a sense of what their frustrations are from, from their perspective, right. not working right. through a proxy, but they reject the idea of having a leader. So I'm like, how do I figure right. out right. who to talk to? Right. And I think right. the administration is having the same struggle. No, I think that's true. But I think it's what's most important is that we listen and that from listening, we can understand what the solutions are. And then with young people, think about how we together mobilize the necessary resources and voices um, and capacities that we need to solve, whether it's 
racism or sexism or the challenge of, of exploitation of, of women and, and girls around the world. Um, these challenges are only going to be solved through collaboration. Now you've got, and this really will be the last thing, I, I could talk to you all day, but you've seen a lot of different types of, of friction, of challenge, of social stress worldwide. So give us a prognosis in America right now. Because, as you say, I mean, social media and, uh, you know, broadcast, cable news has really amped up the volume on a lot of voices. But how bad is it? Historically and on a global basis, how rough a spot are we in and how long do you think it might take for us to grow out of it? Well, I think we are absolutely in a rough spot but I am more hopeful today than I have ever been. And part of the reason for that is because I get the privilege of doing commencement addresses every year. And when you do commencement addresses, you get to look out into a sea of amazing young people who are committed to changing the world. And there are armies of these young millennials around the world who want to commit their lives to reducing inequality, to improving the climate, to making conditions better for poor people and women and girls. And so I am very hopeful. Can you compare it to another time in American history? Absolutely. I think the Industrial Age was a challenging time in America because we saw the exploitation of millions of people, child labor, um, really pillaging the environment. Um, all sorts of atrocities happened in the name of, of in this industrial economy. Um, we came out of that on the other side of it. Uh, certainly it was not easy. Certainly there were many challenges. But at the end of the day, we were a better nation and a better world. And I think we are on the cusp of something really exciting in the world. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on, Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. Thanks for all the time and for the great insight. It's an honor to be here. Thanks, John. My thanks to Darren Walker. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on iTunes, Apple's podcast app, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. I'd really appreciate you leaving a review if you enjoyed this. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I tackle the biggest business and economic issues of the week with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next week, well, it's time for Valentine's Day. And whether you're singing Calling Dr. Love or I Was Made for Loving You, that's right, I've got Gene Simmons from KISS joining me in a conversation for the Fort Knox podcast. All right, the Valentine's Day connection is a little bit of a stretch, though Simmons did share some of his trademark views on gender relations. Uh, mostly, though, we talked about how he and Paul Stanley launched and maintained a brand and marketing monster. And what's next for KISS? I think you might be surprised. Subscribe now on iTunes, get the automatic download, and don't miss it. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.